Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we're talking to John King, frontman for, I, I mean, I think is one of, if not the most important post-punk band ever, Gang of Four. I mean, who else could it be? Uh, P.I.L., Joseph K., there's a few others in there, but I mean, Gang of Four really led the way. They are the ones. They, I, you know, it's interesting to me, I realized when I was getting ready to talk to John that I per, I always think of television's Marky Moon as being the greatest debut album in history, but I think we forget sometimes how crucial and important Gang of Four's debut entertainment was. I would say that's like a top 10, top 5. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. This is Damaged Goods off that album. John and I talk about really the whole history of the band. I mean, in a lot of cases, we kind of almost go album by album. If you know the band really well, hopefully you learn some new things in here. If you don't know them at all, hopefully you hear some things that you like and we'll go explore because their sound varied over the years. Um, as we, as you know, guitarist, one of the most unique guitarists ever, Andy Gill, passed away last year. And there had been some ups and downs in their relationship, and John doesn't hold back on that. Um, so we talk about that, what that meant to them. Uh, we talk about how that sound evolved. I mean, eventually, they went from damaged goods to more of, more of like a new wave band in the 80s. A lot of bands did. They still did their thing, and it sounded great. But it was different, you know? And then they've come back here and there throughout the years, but it was strained. We also talked about how how they got a song on the Karate Kid soundtrack. I mean, what a weird band to be on that soundtrack, right? But you know I love that kind of stuff. And we, all, <laughs> we get into whether David Byrne from Talking Heads stole his look from John. There's a possibility there. Anyway, I, Gang of Four are amazing, and I hope that you're going to learn some things in here that you didn't know. And if you're less familiar with them, I hope you're getting turned on to a lot of stuff that you're going to like because they are a very rewarding band to follow up on. Love Gang of Four. And John is so thoughtful and so erudite. I love talking to him. He called me from his home in Bath, England. All right. First and foremost, I have a small bone to pick with you, John, because... In March, you went on a North American tour, and you did not come to Denver, where I live. And I was really heartbroken by that, because I've never seen Gang of Four, and I've always wanted to. And you had uh, my friend Dolette McDonald on the tour with you. She's been Uh, on the show. I don't know her personally, but she's been on the uh, show, and we became friendly. And so tell me what... What's the plan now with Gang of Four? I mean, are you going to do more tours like this? Are you working on new music? What are you going to do? The original purpose of the tour uh, two years ago <laughs> was uh, to, I've been working on uh, designing and creating the box sets. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we, we signed to Matador Records and I had worked um, on the creative for that and had expected that to come out sometime or other in 2020. Uh, as a result of um, there has been this um, disease you may have heard of, and uh, oh, it affected well. everything. Yeah. And so the everything got really put back. All of the dates we were originally kind of like thinking about putting that album out, sorry, the box set out at the end of 2020, and then touring to support that. And of course, nothing happened. The entire uh, world went crazy. 
and it particularly uh, affected the entertainment industry. So it wasn't possible to play. And it, I continued to work on the production of the box set, which was really difficult to do. Um, How so? Uh, it, it was, well, the only place that could produce it to the standard I wanted was in the Czech Republic. Oh, Wow. Uh, it wasn't possible to do it in the UK or in, or in North America. There was no way that could, could produce that thing. And um, uh, that was great until the Czech Republic became the epicenter in, in Europe at that time of COVID infections. Mm. So any one time, either the warehouse was closed or the pressing plant was shut or the, the stuff happened. And um, you probably heard this from every person on the show, but there was a perfect storm. For example, I had wanted to do... Uh, uh, C90s rather than C60s to make it really old school, but there's no tape available. Uh, we managed <laughs> we managed to find enough cassette tape. I think we had all of the stock of C60 tape that they had available. Really? Uh, <laughs> it was it was a no. It was, it was quite a it was quite a challenge, and everyone got ill all the time except me. Um, you never uh, caught COVID. No, wow. I've been triple vaccinated. But every single person I know, my wife, my kids, my friends, everyone has had it, some really badly. Yeah, so that was complicated. We then thought we might tour in 2021 because we thought things were getting better. Then I can't remember, there was another variant came along and then it's fucked up. And I then was not allowed to come into the US because of the COVID. So they didn't allow anyone at all into the United States. And in fact, it was only last November 2021 that they allowed anyone who was not a green card holder or a u.s passport holder to come into the u.s mm. so I, I it was so that was cancelled yeah so in the end this tour that we did in march came out you know kind of force majeure the the the, the box set had come out yeah. unsupported uh, sold out immediately uh uh, brilliantly nominated for a Grammy for it, which surprised me a lot. Although not winning didn't surprise me. Up against a thousand, <laughs> winning against a thousand dollar Dead Beetle box set. No one, <laughs> no one is going to beat a Dead Beetle, no. and certainly not one that cost a thousand dollars and all that stuff. My budget, by the way, was uh, for the whole of the box set was twenty thousand dollars. Really, uh, yeah, I used to I hear the the ads on Spotify a lot. Yeah, this is John King, damaged goods playing, and then there, there's you yeah. and your voice. Yeah, yeah, that's me. Because they're, they're, yeah, and um, I think I've gone on a bit, but it was it was quite difficult. The tour itself then became a challenge for our agent because they they again everyone in the world wanted to go out on on the road at exactly the same time. So just trying to string together a month's worth of dates was was really complicated. And Denver, unfortunately. It's not on the way to anywhere, particularly. Right. I mean, not Denver's great. I've been there. I love Denver, but um, it's it's quite uneconomic to fit it in if you're competing with every single other band in the world for slots. Understood. There's only one good, decent club in Denver, isn't there? Well, uh, I think there's several. Club. There's one for you guys. Yeah, there's probably one or two. Yeah. Yeah, and um, so there was a lot of. That's it, really. Okay. And in, in terms of long plan, is we had. A fabulous time. I was playing with, you know, my friends who, and we all we all really got on really really well. And we, what we were, had thought we might do this year was play more festivals through the summer, and then club dates around them. But but all the festival shows are booked up with acts who are booked in 2019. Oh. 
God. Such, what a mess. Yeah, it's really strange. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next next year, in principle, if we get festival shows, uh-huh. uh, the reason for the festival shows is that it makes a tour economic where people, David Pachel lives in Los Angeles, I live in England, Hugo lives in Gloucester, Massachusetts, Sarah Lee lives in Woodstock. You know, so everyone's got to come yeah. together and then head off. Wow! So you need a, you need a kind of something or other. Anyway, that's what we're working on. Okay. Long and and any new music? I know Andy made some music without you the last couple albums, yeah. but are you going to do anything new? Do you think? Well, uh, David Pachel and I are planning to to write together. I mean, I I uh, you know I didn't approve of Andy uh, uh, putting stuff out. Which is basically solo a solo album, sure. solo albums. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, I I am working on on stuff which will either be good or or not. If it's not good, I won't put it out. <laughs> uh, <Surprise>. So <laughs> yeah, okay. But I'm I'm really excited. I mean, working with David was sensational. I mean, he he um you may have uh, seen the reviews of the tour, but he utterly nailed respectfully nailed the way that andy played you know really it's not really, easy it's yeah. not easy but it was extraordinary to to hear him it was like listening to andy in 1980 uh, but then he layered his own extraordinary uh, technical skills because andy was as you know was not a technical player he couldn't he could really not play the guitar very well at all, except as himself, mm-hmm. and at which he was brilliant. Right, and, right. Uh, and so David added stuff to it. So it was, it was, it was fantastic. It, it was, it was kind of almost. I felt times if Andy had practiced, he'd have played like David. He never practiced. He never practiced. He practiced. Yeah, but, but the tour was was sensational. I think everybody who went to the shows, I think there were, who were big fans of think, how's he going to handle yeah. the guitar stuff? And again, as you've seen from the reviews, everyone said, yeah. I was a bit, a bit anxious or a bit apprehensive and said, I was blown away. Yep. And uh, speaking That's to me, I, was, I heard. Yeah. And, and uh, Andy and I were sort of used to be so tight and such great friends. And I was a massive fan of the way he played. And at times I was sort of like thinking, God, this is this is incredible. You know, it took it took me back. What um were you were you two in contact at all? Did he die of COVID? Do we know for sure? He wasn't diagnosed with that, no. But I mean Andy uh was uh, had a lifelong chronic asthma condition. I mean, he nearly died as a child. Oh um, I knew Andy from the age of about 15. My wife knew him from the age of about eleven. Oh wow! Um, he was he was quite unwell with this chronic um, asthma, um, and he also had a, a, an autoimmune disease which is called scarring of the lungs. Mm. And he was an alcoholic, mm. and he was uh, uh, overweight, and he had other health is- issues. Sure, it's entirely possible. <laughs> That if someone if COVID was going to take anyone out in the beginning when there was no stuff, yep. however, he died of pneumonia. Uh, okay. Uh, so, I'd read somewhere that it may have been an early uh, instance that, that, of COVID. I know, they don't I know, know. that's what 
I know um, his um, his widow has has said that and speculated that, and it it may be so. I mean, but I think with all the other things on him, yeah. you know, like I say, lung scarring, uh, 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 the um, asthma and alcoholism. I don't think really, you know, he he, he had a marked card, which is I mean, it was very sad. I mean, I was I was very uh, upset when that happened. Were you two still in touch at all, or were you at odds? No. No. no, we were, we had been at odds for a long time. When, um, uh, when uh, t- 10 years ago, when we had last played together, it had become quite uh, impossible from my pers- perspective. I mean, I didn't like, I didn't like working with a drunk, you know, and, and um, it was very extreme. I mean, uh, it got to, it had gone too far. Yeah. And, um, and I wanted the band to just stop working. It was because he and I'd worked together for 35 years and, yeah. you know, uh, co-wrote, you know, I co-wrote all the music, co-produced entertainment and Solid Gold and Song of the Free and yeah. did all the artwork and all this stuff. And I, uh, I, I, um, I didn't want it to carry on and he did carry on. And I tried unsuccessfully to get him to not use the name. Mm. And I he wondered. did. If you've got two people who own something, you know, it's yeah. and one person doesn't want to do something, the other one does. It's quite difficult to do that. But uh, it led to a complete, we had a completely severed relationships. We've been very, very close friends all our lives. It was very sad. But but it, as I say, the main thing was the alcoholism. And I think yeah. that was what that's what I found impossible to, to, to work. I, I don't know. You probably have worked with people who have, had issues and it's, yeah. it's not easy. it's not easy no no but nope. anyway uh, we well, I what I felt very much though you know obviously producing the box set was really cathartic because you know we used to love each other you know we were we were you know I think Gang of Four was a very descriptive name you can see from the photos and that stuff Absolutely. we're all smiling and laughing and enjoying each other's company and firing ideas off each other and so that's what i remember you know that's what i cherish is is that stuff and sure. not not the i think the tragedy of old age you know yeah. or, or, or drink you know. i bet i wanted to ask you when i was getting ready to talk to you i was watching old live clips and there was one from well in several of the old clips there was one in particular i think it was rock Palast or old gray whistle test or something around 1983 Dolette's there singing. And, um, I'm watching it and I'm thinking, I wonder if when John watched talking heads, stop making sense for the first time, did he feel like David Byrne ripped him off because you, in a lot of those early clips, you're wearing a beige suit, just like him. You have very similar kind of dance moves, kind of flopping around. It, It struck me. Uh, I maybe I'm way off base here. Maybe I'm the only one who thinks this, but it looked very much like stop making sense to me. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I did think, think that, and I do think that, I mean, do I, you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, when, uh, I remember when we, we, we played in Harar in New York, I think it was New Year's Eve, one of the sort of legendary shows that we, we did, uh, uh, supported by the Mekons, I think it was, on, on a New Year's Eve. And it was rammed, as you'd expect, and someone in the audience shouted out, 
David Burns taking notes. <laughs> and uh, and David Byrne was in the audience and he was taking notes. And uh, I, I, I liked Talking Heads at the beginning, not as much as I liked television. Mm. At the, the beginning, I liked Talking Heads when they came to the Romanian Light album. Yeah. Which, of yeah. course, uh, by that stage, it struck. It did strike me the similarities because, of course, you know, I wore this sort of big, baggy, off-colour suit, and I myself had sort of been as an homage to uh, Lee Brillo in Doctor Feelgood. Who oh, filthy. okay, okay. So he wore a filthy white suit covered in beer and food and stuff, and I saw that wore this oversized um, coat and uh, and jacket, and of course what as you probably know, early talking heads stood stock still on the stage. I mean, they were, they just would stand there and, and be really, really immobile. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there was that. And also the introduction of funk into the music. You yes. Know? I, mean, I mean, talking heads is, was the early talking heads immensely non-funky. Yes. I mean, and of course, it was interesting, you know, because uh, Tina and and Chris, good, great friends of Hugo's and, and, and friends of ours, you know, they sort of they they had to go elsewhere to do the funk with Tom Tom yes. Club. Yes, they did. Uh, Chris uh, has been on here. He's a super nice man. He's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely yeah. wonderful. And um, when the bus caught fire on tour, he was sending us some very funny messages. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. I saw the picture of that. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, we had some adventures. Yeah, I bet yeah. you did. Yeah, I just wondered when I was watching those early clips and stuff, and it just yeah. reminded me so much of David's yeah. suit in "Stop Making Sense." And I thought there's yeah. got to be a connection here. Um, okay, yeah, it, you-, it's, you know, I was thinking it's it's funny those things where some you know you, you you someone spots the connection, and it's I find it slightly irritating in myself that I also see the connection. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe it's more obvious than I thought. Um, yeah. Okay, you mentioned the funk. I got to ask, um, I like to throw in questions about specific songs. What We yeah. All Want is probably my favorite Gang of Four song. It's because of the funk aspect. And to me, the fu- funk is what makes post-punk, as they say, what it is. It's guys yeah. who uh, are making punk rock. at the, This is my mind, anyway. Punk bands who are competing with disco that's happening sort of simultaneously, 
and thinking, well, I also like to dance. I also like some groove. Let's see if we can merge the two. And then that's when bands like yours and Joseph K and all these other bands, you know, start implementing or talking heads to some degree, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. So that's when your sound really starts to evolve from, you know, entertainment to uh, yeah. onward. So tell me about yeah. the writing of uh, what we all want. Cause I love that song. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, I once went into a club and, and I was, this is years ago and someone, there was some music playing in the background. Everyone was dancing like mad. And the, whoever I was with said, uh, this song's so cool, isn't it? And I said, yeah. And I said, I said, who's it by? And he said, it's your song. It's what we all want. And I was, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, were you I, being modest or did you really not know? I really didn't know. No, no. I, wow, I, had really, I wasn't paying attention. But the way that was written was Hugo and Dave were in the rehearsal, had been in the rehearsal room. I used to grumble a lot and Andy used to grumble a lot about, uh -huh. about people sort of jamming and ending up with sort of jazz funk workouts, you know, <laughs> or, or genre workouts. You know, right. I don't know if you've ever played in a band. It's really, really easy to slip into something that you know. Uh, it's really easy to sort of like, if you can't come up with something, just to play something that you know. I'm, I'm thinking, think of that song, that movie, Let It Be with the Beatles, yeah. uh, when they're sitting around talking. Whenever they get to a point of sort of emotional crisis, they'll sit there and they'll play anything from Bo Diddley to, to whatever it was. Brilliantly. Right. Right. Because they played like 30 hours a week, every week, for, you know, 50 years yes. or something. Yes. Um, so this was, but D Dave, Dave was a fantastic bass player who loved bands like Can, which we all were big fans of, you know, that kraut rock funk thing. Absolutely. And of course, Funkadelic. And what we didn't ever want to do was to be like uh, a white band playing funk music. Not, not that it's, you know, banned for doing that, but, uh, but you know, once you listen to the Gap Band, and uh, James Brown, you, th you think you can't really compete exactly. with the one. You can't compete with the one, right. but they own the one. <laughs> but you can compete with the flavour of it all, which is to say to have a song which doesn't have verses and it doesn't have a chorus and it actually doesn't really have any key changes in it. And Because I, I, I would write little rules some, about how we were going to do a song, and you'd say, wow. right, no key changes no verses, no choruses, no bridges, but dropouts, mm. you know, or whatever, or, or, or something like Andy called it, anti-solos sometimes. Yes. So Hugo and David come up with this great groove, and it went on and on and on. You think, there it is. Once that happened, Andy then improvised over the top of it, and I improvised my vocal over the top of it, and it came together really in that kind of, in a jamming way. But we were in the studio at Abbey Road with um, Jimmy Douglas. And Jimmy Douglas had worked uh, with, uh, the reason we chose him, he'd worked with Slave, which is a great funk band. Of course, he'd worked with Aerosmith and, and other acts like that, AOR acts. It was, you know, a great a great uh, privilege to work with, with the great man. I mean, how I, I annoyed him immensely with um, my lyrics, of course, which he couldn't stand. Uh, <laughs> Any of it. <laughs> when are you guys going to sing about sex or something I can well, understand? Like, yeah, he said this is also like this is like being a schoolboy, and I said I said it's not, you know. And I I had an argument with him, uh, you know, not an argument, but a kind of disagreement about what you can or can't write about. And I said I said to him, I said 
you know, come on, you know, um, uh, Marvin Gaye wrote what What's Going On? And he wrote about all of this stuff. He didn't write about, you know, girls and cars and, and all that stuff like, you know, like REO Speedwagon or, right. you know, there's more, there, there are other things you can write about. In fact, I then brought him in when I'd written them um, on that album, um, In the Ditch, I got brought him a copy of Bertolt Brecht's Poets <laughs> Poetry. I mean, I, I must say, I, I was a wanker, really, but I mean, <laughs> it was, it was, it was to, to say, you know, that actually what, what my way of writing was more like Bertolt Brecht, mm-hmm. which is a perfectly legitimate place to start from. Totally. Than REO Speedwagon. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, I don't think Aerosmith is bringing in Brecht as an no, influence, you know? No, no. And, um, so, but so what we want was like that, and and uh, it had that, that fantastic uh, guitar opportunity for a guitar expression in it. And Andy was, did a majestic thing on that. I mean, I love just the guitars, superb, you know. And um, you know, I think it's it's up there with the uh, Eddie Van Halen, you know, and um, you know, ACDC guitar solos, totally uh, of, of, that, of that of its own type. Yeah, uh, and it was, I think, like you, it's, I think it's along with like to hell with poverty. One of my favourite recordings that sort of got that. And yeah. Dave and I, when we first met, had when we talked about music, the band really early on, before we'd written anything decent, we used to revere the meters. Mm, and you know, I mean, and um, I still, I don't know, every couple of weeks listen to Sissy Strut, you know, and uh, you know, that that sort of naked but intense sort of focus on in their case obviously on the one and stuff sure. quite a neglected band compared to other ones but you know uh, so good though yeah oh so good i mean the meters were just just so good i mean <laughs> and anyway so dave and i sort of revered them and he he learned to play the bass by listening to john peel or copying actually heard on john peel and the meters Whoa. which is a kind of kind of a mix okay there. there you go that's kind of what See i'm that. saying yeah yeah, you know, and 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 the nakedness of the meters and the nakedness of the other bands, which was um, Doctor Feelgood. Oh, you know, so, so so Gil's guitar was 
very much a quotation of Wilco Johnson for a long time, and certainly stage-wise. And also I had a kind of homage to Lee Brillo at the beginning. And then Dave was came in from the meters. And Hugo, of course, was uh, you know, idolized um, Simon Kirk from uh, Free. <laughs> you guys are all over the place. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is, and that's a great song live. And, and sometimes we, we let it go like, um, you know, One Nation Under a Groove. We can sort of really, really just let it find its own uh, air. Um, what about um, I Love a Man in Uniform? I know there's a whole story there. I think it was banned by the BBC. That must have been a light bulb moment thinking, ooh, I can make a statement and tie it back to, I don't know, homoerotic sensibilities. I can yeah. merge the two and be really controversial. Is that what you're yeah. thinking when you're writing that song? Well, actually, I think, I think actually on that third album, we were working with um, Mike Howlett. You know, he'd done sort of Flock of Seagulls and stuff. And and he said, you know, you, you are allowed to do something a bit poppy, you know, if, if, if you if you want to. Um, you, you know, you've already, you don't have to, you don't necessarily have to stick at that. And so Annie and I thought, well, let's let's write something with chord changes in it. I mean, when we, start, when we started writing, it was very much, I mean, a song like Essence Rare has got, obviously it's got a bridge and a verse, a verse and a bridge and a chorus. Of the songs don't have that at all in them they have their own um, dynamic but I thought we go back to like a 251 chord thing and to have a bit of funk in it and something that you could dance to so 
like a lot of, I mean, being obviously writing the, the lyrics, I had, I had my little notebooks with little lines in it, which um, uh, I sort of would mull over. And one of the lines was, you know, you overhear people. And I think someone said, oh, I love, very commonly said, I love a man in a uniform, you know, or don't men look good in uniforms or whatever it is. And it seemed like a really good entree. But at the time, writing it, uh, it was it was clear that actually, if you live in a place with a mass unemployment and mass difficulties, it's 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 not a bad idea to go into uh, into the armed forces. And of course, it's always been a, an escape for working class uh, uh, men and women, well, women now, but men then to 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 escape like rock and roll is an escape. So I so I sort of wrote with great respect for those for those people, but with that sort of there is a great homoerotic side. It was a it was a big success in gay clubs. I believe it. And, uh, it's an which, yeah, and uh, which was great. We've always had a big gay following. Oh, really? Um, and I, I actually on the last tour, it was quite interesting. There were a lot of I don't know. You never know how many people, but there seemed to be sort of a chunk of the audience were you know under twenty five young gay men and women who'd seen stuff in entertainment. That that helped them get by. They came afterwards. I had some quite moving conversations with people. Um, you know you, about how it had helped, and I think like the song like "I Love a Man in a Uniform" was was cheeky. It was banned in the UK. I mean, we we had more singles banned in the UK than the Sex Pistols. <laughs> uh, I love uh, "Homies a Tourist" was banned in the UK. Really? Okay. Uh, yeah. Because it mentioned rubbers, oh, uh, you'll probably sure. you'll have to bleep that out because it's so offensive, isn't it? <laughs> <We're>, and, <laughs> I'm going to warn people ahead of time. Be careful. You could have a parental advisory on that one. That's right. <laughs> uh, when I when I wrote those lyrics, I had in, deliberately written it in American English because at that time, because the British people don't use the word rubbers, mm. and and when I wrote that, the slang word for a condom was a Johnny. That's right. Yeah, not rubbers at all. So I wrote it in American, thinking it would be okay. No, not okay, but it just sounded better than Johnny yeah. sounded. It's, a, it's not a very nice sounding word, but unfortunately, the BBC did detect its meaning. So once it had gone into the charts, it then it was tossed off, yeah. and we were thrown off the number one TV show in in in. That's right. In- I've heard this. T- is that? 
Is that the top? Okay, I read somewhere about a top oh, yeah. story yeah. where I think it was that you guys didn't want to perform, you didn't want to mime, or maybe this is maybe I'm no, reading the two. I had very strange rules then that which was the musicians' union in the UK used to really represent orchestras and rock rock bands weren't really represented, and they the rule was that anyone who was on top of the pops you had to be going up the charts in the i.e. in the top thirty. Uh, but you had to re-record the song and reuse, in other words, give session musicians or orchestral players another opportunity to get paid. Oh. And so they said to us, uh, you know, you've got to re-record this, but we don't like this word rubbers because it's a family show. Right. So we thought about it and we thought, well, well I'll, I'll say packets. So that just, we actually didn't re-record it at all, just, just recorded that word and dropped uh -huh. it in. Uh -huh. And uh, on the show itself, they said, they were caught, they were panicking, and they said, "You know, you've changed the word, but it still means the same thing." And I said, "Yeah, that's uh, the idea." And anyway, I, I I got a little bit aerated. I told him to go fuck himself. The producer. <laughs> uh, you know, this, were you ever invited back on top of the pops? No, no. You have to be yeah. going up the charts then. <laughs> well, the, next, the next the next single that was going up the charts that we would have been on top of the charts was, of course, "I Love a Man in a Uniform." Right. And that came out. Uh, here we are in a state of great anxiety about Ukraine. But there was out of the blue, the Argentinians invaded this island that no one had even heard of. I mean, I, I, I had no idea that we owned somewhere, yeah. uh, uh, rightly or wrongly, in the South Atlantic. You know, you went, we went from being on the maximum playlists to being off, off air because it was seen to be disloyal, which I thought was interesting. So that was banned. Okay. Yeah. I thought so. By the time you guys get to hard, your sound has changed so much. I actually really like hard because yeah. I think it's a really fun new wavy album. Yeah. It's not yeah. indicative of what made game of gang of four special, yeah. but it's you guys putting your own spin on, you know, something the human league might've done. What were you, uh, was that a natural evolution for you guys to start incorporating more synthesizers or were you being, you know, pressured to do this? What's the story of hard? No, I mean, we did exactly what we wanted whenever we wanted the, the record company. I mean, when we did entertainment, they didn't visit at once in the recording of entertainment. When we presented entertainment, for example, they said, this is great. Is this the demo? So no, no, this is the actual <laughs> That's album. It. Uh, so there, there wasn't any involvement in that. But when we got to doing the hard record, I wasn't really sure what what we should do. What I really wanted to do was to do something that had more dance elements in it. And we spent a long time, we were going to work with Niall Rogers on that record. Oh, really? Uh, no, this is before Niall had done anything with, with Bowie and that stuff. And we were huge Chic fans. And we had a... We had uh, pretty much a contract agreed with him, but our manager was a crook called Bennett Glotzer, who died, I think, in the last 18 months. Mm. He, he managed us and Zappa. He went to prison. Mm. He was, he was a, a, a bona fide crook. Legitimate. But I, I think, I, I don't know what went on, but I mean, certainly the discussions with, with uh, Niall went south. And um, he hired the Albert brothers who'd worked with, you know, Aretha Franklin and Dionne Warwick and stuff to work 
there and Andy said he really wanted to to produce it and I produced the first three albums with Andy the three of two of us produced those and I didn't really want to do that anymore I the the, the sort of sense that we had at the time was I know Andy was quite I was actually jealous of Green in Squitty Politi at the time. I love Green. Because that, you remember the, the would-bees and, and uh, stuff, fantastic stuff. That was Arif Mardin. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not, it's, it, you know, you are working with a god. Exactly. Uh, and I wanted to work with a god as well, uh, which was Nile Rogers. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and when that fell apart, I lost kind of interest in it, really. And I obviously wrote the songs, but left the sound entirely up to Andy and the, and the Albert brothers. Mm. And I, what I don't like about the record, I mean, I'm, I'm quite conflicted about it, is, is I don't, I, we had booked, for example, the drummer of Miami Sound Machine. Uh, really? Uh, yeah, and he did, drum, he did drumming on that thing. And then um, Andy and the Albert brothers replaced it with sort of drum machines and other stuff. I mean, it was... Uh, uh, when I went down to Miami, we we recorded it in um, Montreal and New York, and then we went down to Criteria Sound. And I was really excited, even though I'd, I'd gone away. I said, "Let's let's go leave you to it." We'd record all the basic tracks. Let's see, let's see what what happens. And it did. It sounded a bit like a band using synthesizers. Yeah, right. but not not brilliant. And and in my mind, I'd been thinking Africa Bambata at that time. Very cool. Or, and or Nile Rogers. To do that kind, you know, either electronic, proper electronic dance stuff or played dance stuff, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I don't know. You mix mm. feelings. I really like it. Do you perform any of those songs still, like Arabic? No, no. I Actually, I was asked a question a while back about the song "Silver Lining." They asked me a very specific, close reading of it. It was one of those moments you think, you know, this must be like having dementia. <laughs> like, I was thinking, silver lining, and I was trying to, <laughs> trying to remember. And I said, you know, I'm really sorry. I can't, I can't remember that song at all. I said, I said, what's it, how'd it go? <laughs> and the guy started humming it in the interview, and I said, oh, this is no good, is it? And so I, and I, I did listen to it. It is quite a good song. <laughs> yeah. But I, but I, I kind of, I'd forgotten about it, and. Um, Rather like that, Arabic, if you sort of hummed it to me, 
<laughs> I might remember it. But I, I, I sort of blanked all that out. We, we had, at that time, it was, it was quite difficult. We got to a point where we had sort of reached our plateau, you know, playing quite good gigs, you know, like sort of five, six thousand seat kind of venue, uh-huh. that sort of thing. But to get bigger than that, you've got to have a hit. You've got to have a hit to get that. And it become a bit repetitive. And Andy and I had weren't seeing eye to eye about about that. That's why I left I left the production to him entirely. And he got very ill. I, I don't know if you know that. The I didn't he, had know that. To, he had uh, testicular cancer. Oh. Yeah. So it, it was it, it, as you can see, I'm, I'm quite sort of it's it's quite a blur at that time. It was quite a lot yeah. of anxiety. He was he was he went as soon as um we uh did that and promoted that thing, he went into hospital. He, oh, he, he didn't yeah. recover. Yeah. But it was, I'm not sure if that's oh, a very that's good answer. Well, good no, answer? I mean, it sounds like the, it, plus you guys then kind of wrapped it up for a while. So it, it must've been sort of beginning to not be interesting or fun anymore. Or what do you do when gang of four ends after hard until 91, what does John King go and do? Well, actually the first thing that we did was write a song on the karate kid. Yeah, that's true. You did. Yeah. Yeah. So Andy and I, when he came out of hospital, and we had 
we hadn't um we hadn't fallen out with each other but you know when we when he was out of hospital and recovered i'd blagged a song on the karate kid which was quite funny to to do that <laughs> it's and then, odd having you on that soundtrack but i love it yeah yeah, yeah. I wrote that song to sound like it was. It was a song that was meant to come out of a car radio. So I wrote some sound like something coming out of a car radio. Mm. There was a live album which we knocked out, and then uh, uh, I did, did stuff. Um, I had what what would now be called the portfolio career because I, you know, you you don't really know what what you can and can't do, mm-hmm. especially if you've been in a band. And one thing I did know about was being on tour, mm-hmm. and also. I am um, a pretty good sound engineer. And so w- I became a tour manager. Really? Uh, so I tour managed like Aswad, you know, the reggae band. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I took them all around America, their first American tours. This, I was this solitary white guy with these Rastafarians. And I, <laughs> I, 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 I had uh, a lot of Jamaican friends at the time. And I, you know, I, I love I their music. I, I mean, I, yeah. as a fan as well as tour manager, I, I make sure I can watch their shows every night. And um, that was really interesting to, to as, like I say, to be the sole white guy with these rest of, rest of geezers. And they were fantastic blokes. And uh, we made very good friends. And I worked with bands like Propaganda. Do you remember oh, Propaganda? sure. I love Propaganda. Yeah. I took, I took them all around Europe and I worked with a, a very successful jazz band called Working Week. And they were um, in a European band and worked with them and Flamange. Yeah, love Blamage. Uh, I, I sort of, uh, so I used to sort of do that kind of stuff. I used to do orchestras. I did the London Symphony Orchestra, yeah. the Royal Festival Hall. Um, I used to do the I used to do the London and Scottish Jazz Festival. So I worked doing the sound for many of the. World. No um, thoughts of a solo album or starting no. some other band or anything like that. No, I had. Well, I did for a while, just for fun. I had a band only for about couple of ones called Mechanic Preachers. Oh. And I uh, made one 12 inch single, which is actually it's really good, I think. Called oh. Spud You Like. Uh, which um uh, you will never have seen, but it was um sort of sort of proto hip hoppy and metal sounding wow. track. And I did that for a while. It was pretty good. So I, that was that was uh quite interesting. Let me let yeah. me ask you. We try to cover sensitively the business side of things over on here. Um, I love '80s movie soundtracks. Um, watched a lot of movies in the '80s, and I'm mm. curious about that Karate Kid song because that movie is on all the time somewhere. Yeah. I've yeah. had Joe Esposito on here who sang "You're the Best," and uh, <laughs> you know he he still makes some decent mailbox money from that. Do you see something similar or was it a one shot? Here's like, you know, a chunk of change to go record a song. I would imagine you get some residuals. Yeah, No, it's actually not a bit on the music side. uh, When from a business perspective, you get a chunk of money to do it, which is often the larger that chunk up front is the less residuals you get. And typically, Studios like to do buyouts now without residuals, you know. So, I mean, we've had um, music on tons of films, you know, from Manchurian Candidate to Marie Antoinette to the the, the OC to um, uh, Treme and all those kind of things. Yeah, Karate Kid was was a was a good fee to do it. 
And what I was hoping was was that the actual soundtrack album would sell like tons because Survivor were the had the lead track on it, and they'd had Eye of the Tiger. Yeah. And the 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 business helpful side to that was if you have a a, a, um, a soundtrack album, you still get the same money as the lead track. You don't, oh, really? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. On the publishing side, if there's ten tracks on it, one of which is Survivor, and and the other one is one of ours then you've done the same money as them unfortunately it didn't do no. brilliantly well at the time but um yeah i mean the advice i would give to anyone is obviously is is write music mm-hmm. because it's it's very difficult to make music as a performing musician you know they have we have some needle type playing new key ppl which i don't know if that exists in america but similar for people who performed on on tracks but it's it's minimal i mean I make sort of low hundreds from oh, really? all the recordings I've done. Okay, but, but publishing is is um, uh, obviously the thing that can keep you going. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, okay. And there are some musicians, you know, like who just do it to get stuff on TV ads. Sure. You know, and uh, we we know, we know who we're talking about. You know, and right. the music sounds like TV ads as soon as you listen to it. Exactly. Um, yeah. But I, but I um. We've always been. I've always been very wary about allowing our stuff to be used on ads, and and uh, sort of you know passed on quite a lot of things which I didn't think uh, would help. Which is obviously not financially the best move. But well, I think it's, but then then your yeah. song becomes cemented with a bar of soap or something. Forever yeah, and yeah. Some people seeing, it's uh, fine, and some people it's not. Yeah, I'm just seeing. Um, Venus in Furs by Velvet Underground used for a fast down car advert. And I, and I, and I, it was always one of my favorite songs that really annoyed, really annoyed me as a fan. And I thought, I don't want to annoy people too much. Yeah. yeah. I don't blame you. Yeah. Um, what was it? Okay. So you guys come back together for Mall in 91. Can I, I'm just going to be honest with you for a minute, John. I, I can't, I can't listen to Mall. It's no, too no. much noise. And it, yeah. what was it about that period, though, that made everyone think, let's get back together and put out another album and let's put out this album? It wasn't, to be honest. I mean, Andy and I at that page, we didn't socialise with each other very much, and didn't. And I had my own uh, different career, which has gone in, 
into other places and I I wasn't really very interested in, in doing any more stuff. But Andy was really, really enthusiastic about it. And he got a studio, he'd invested in a studio. Oh, that record and um content sort of very much more, you know, his vision okay. of how he wants to do things. I like content, I, but all I, 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 I think it's quite a crappy record, really. And um Shrink Wrapped uh, is pretty good. I like Shrink Wrapped. Shrink Wrapped is good. And that was a soundtrack to a film called Delinquent. Oh, that that uh, it was an indie, it's an indie art house movie, and uh, a guy called Peter Hall, not the theatre director, an American guy who was a friend of ours, was the writer and director and producer of this indie film. Oh, I didn't and know that. We, uh, nothing said we'd write the music for it, and we enjoyed it so much. Um, and it was good writing then to a narrative, you know, because you were trying to write something that sort of connected to it. It had that kind of claustrophobia about it, and I, yeah. I, 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 when I, when I came up with a name for it, shrink wrapped. I obviously I like the pun involved, uh, you know, and um, but um, you know that thing which I think is quite particularly American is being in a, a motel room with really bad sound insulation. <laughs> you know, you you both can hear everything that's going on, but aware that everyone can hear everything that you're going on. It's it's like a type of it's like a type of prison. Where everyone's really controlling what they might do because you know that you could probably punch your hand through the walls, which and people go there to do transgressive things. Yeah, string wrapped. I thought it was pretty good, and and um, I, I parade myself on shrink wrapped. Is one that we play live. That's, On the lot, it's fantastic. It's it's, it's it's um it's an incredible kind of uh, it's turned into a quite a, a central um, live gig song. Nice. And that that song that song about the narcissist, you know, parading up and down and, and looking at himself has got legs. Yeah. More, I, can't, I can't. To be honest, I I can't um I can't remember much about that at all it was um and it's not really very any good <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a terrible record really 
ball. Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, you must uh, get this a lot from musicians that uh, they don't listen to their own music. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, 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 I only hear sort of, I only ever hear failure sometimes when I listen to it all. Really? Oh. Yeah. That's, well, I, there's not I, a lot I, of failure in Gang of Fours catalog, yeah. if you ask me. So, but Maul, I think, was a genuinely a crappy record. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. Right, so. Yeah. so we all make mistakes. <laughs> it's okay. It was the sound of the time. We haven't, yeah. I'm curious, when you look back, John, what, I mean, you've been at this for over 40 years, 45 yeah. years. You've probably met a lot of your heroes. You've probably had played crazy shows you probably you've what are some of like when you sit back there in bath at your home and you think i can't believe the life i've had what are some of the things that come to mind well one of the most amazing things that come to mind is we played the us festival you did uh, I yeah forgot about that so there was ah. the, it was the, the i can't remember the exact running order but on the night we played it was the police the ramones oh. talking heads Gang of Four, B-52s, and there was like 240,000 people. That was quite That was quite amazing. I mean, yes. uh, that was, I think, then the, the biggest festival that had been to that date. Yeah. And, you know, to, to play where Horizon to Horizon, it's people. Yeah. Um, and it was in, um, I think it was in Orange County or somewhere yeah. south of LA, and it was like 100 and 15 degrees or something and it was it was so but it was an amazing thing to do and you sort of Uh think well that was quite a thing of course touring our support band for you know a year and a half was rem really i didn't uh, know that yeah they were they were our main support band no way yeah in fact we were on the last tour we played in a a club you you know when you, you were talking earlier on about being en route to place. Sometimes you do gigs wherever you can get it that's between one place and another place. Uh-huh. I remember it was, it was like a fill-in date. And it was it was a really nice club. And I was talking to the promoter and he said, oh, you played here before. I said, really? I can't remember that. And he said, no, you did play here before, I think in like 1982. And he, he got the contract out and it was us. And our support band was REM. They got 200 bucks uh, <laughs> as, our, as our support band. And, uh, but they, they, were, they were great they were great friends. Uh, I think also some of the sort of sometimes you play things where you um you just can't can't believe how thrilling it was. Like actually the first show which I wrote about or was written about in the book, us with the Buzzcocks in the Geary Temple. Ooh. You know, and, and afterwards, you know, you think that's that's interesting. That's the that was the Geary Temple where they left to take the Kool-Aid. You know, um, yes. And you think, in the middle of all of all the stuff that's going on, you know, and and then other sort of other adventures. I remember playing in Berlin, and uh, we were there, and, and there was a riot going on outside. This was like police cars going, and there was tear gas coming into the dressing room, into the, into the stage, and everything like this, and it's faintly connected with what with us. And sometimes we unexpectedly sort of identified with things. We were very big in Yugoslavia before it fell apart. Oh. I don't know. And identified with the um, uh, resistance against the the communist government. Sure. 
we we played some I'm playing a basketball hall. I don't have many people in a basketball hall, like three thousand people, something like that. And it's rammed in, it's surrounded by cops, and there's army. <laughs> oh, where? <laughs> it was. It's funny you say, ah, oh, this. So we mean, you know, when you think that you mean something, or or you or, or you or you're helping other people on their journey and meaning. Sure, it's, it's a real trip. Yeah, and, uh, you know, and I think, as I said earlier, what I felt quite humbled about. Is you know when to find that people trying to find their own identity and their own sort of purpose can find something in the things we've done. You know, yeah. I, yes, I find that really very powerful. You know, and I, I, yeah. it's 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 yeah, yeah. It's that well, sort of thing. your music empowered. A lot of, I mean, especially at the time, but it continued. It's it's remained timeless. I I read that you guys purposely didn't, you never wrote love songs, and no. uh, and I can see that because the messaging in your music from forty two years ago remains just as pertinent. Because all of those, we still need those messages. I mean, look at what's yeah. going on in the world. Nothing's really changed too too much, you know. No, I mean it's on the. Second album, there's a song called In the Ditch. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In 1980, when I, when that was came out, or 81, the, every single household in Britain had been sent a pamphlet about how to survive the inevitable nuclear exchange with, with the Soviet Union. Every household got this thing. I think it was called Protect and Survive. Then, so in and every local authority, every city and every community had to produce their own local version of this. And so we had Leeds and the bomb. If you, we lived in Leeds, and so there's Leeds and the bomb. In fact, there's a picture in the book of it. It's a great big uh, mushroom cloud and what to do in the event of this nuclear exchange. And uh, they suggest you whitewash your windows and get under the table. Really? And uh, if you had time to fill up black plastic bin liners with clothing at, under the table because it protects you from the nuclear. That was the that was the, genuinely the useful advice. So uh, uh, in, uh, in the ditch, and so uh-huh. get down, down to the floor... Uh, so that again, think about now. There's the Ukraine thing. Obviously, there's the great threat that if, if as seems more and more likely, the, the Russians don't have a military success, they might use nuclear weapons. Yeah, uh, you know, they might do that. 
And then another song on entertainment was Guns Before Butter, which is all about this stuff. All the stuff basically Jimmy Douglas said I shouldn't write about. <laughs> well, I, I was, it's funny when listening back to entertainment, I thought who else would write a song called guns before butter and gang of four. That's, that's not a song. There's going to be multiple, you know, it's not like I want you or something where there's a million songs like that. No, okay. Yeah. One last question. Uh, and I ask this sometimes there may not be a good answer. I'm originally from Salt Lake city has gang of four ever played Salt Lake city. No, never. No, I'm intrigued by Salt Lake City because uh, I'm assuming that you are a lapsed Mormon. Yes, <laughs> lapsed. And, yes, uh, I'm not as for. I'm not as you know devout as I once was. Yes. Exactly, and um, so I sort of guess. I think the things that we are certainly, you know, um, you know, certainly on the left, obviously. I mean, when Same. we went on tour again on the tour, we had. The, the flags on stage, we had an American flag and a British flag, our flags, but we also had Black Lives Matter, anti-fascist action and the LGBTQ flags on right stage. On. That was the backdrop because we own our own flags. We own the British, I own the British flag and you own the American flag and, you know, I'm the only Brit in the band anyway now. And, um, but those, that says, that's where we come from, you know, and and you're there as part of, that other stuff mm-hmm. and 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 i suppose going to the salt lake city thing i'd use it always comes from a demand from a promoter i don't know what the community's like there but whether whether there's enough people like you or it, as you've done you've gone somewhere else you'd be surprised you know? actually salt lake city has yeah. a very very vibrant alternative rock uh yeah yeah community. a lot of yeah. bands from the 80s still go back there and sell out and the large killers come from there, don't they? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they're originally from from Las Vegas, but they the lead singer Brandon Flowers also spent some time yeah. in Utah. He lived there. I ask yeah. because it's inevitably whenever I ask, especially a band that was an '80s alternative band like yours, yeah. uh, because Salt Lake City is such a hub for them, they've passed through and they have some crazy story about oh, how they went to try and 
you know, they tried to buy alcohol and they couldn't, or they got stopped or, you know, the girls that they, the the groupies were especially crazy because they were lapsed Mormons or whatever. And so (laughs) whenever I ask a Salt Lake city story, somebody inevitably has a crazy story about it. So I thought I'd throw it out there. No, no. The the craziest time we ever had was, uh, you know, places like the Tropicana in Los Angeles, you know, things like that, you know, and, uh, yeah. Okay. You know, that was a place, I mean, I wish I had my camera with me, but I don't know whether now everything is recorded, but you know, you'd be, we'd be in one set of rooms and there would be the police in the next set of rooms, you know, and there, there's, um, you know, Iggy pop living up around the, around the corner and, you know, all in this motel thing. And so you could sort of, you could always uh, find someone to have a, have some fun with yeah that would be so fun wow yeah yeah uh well john thank you for talking with me i if you can't tell i love gang of four and i'm so glad we got to do this because you're a legend in my mind thank you you're very kind thank you very much all right there you have it john king again i hope you heard some stuff that you liked we sort of skipped over in talking about all of the albums that they did uh they put out an album like 12 years ago i think called content that I actually really liked. That one's good. And we didn't get into it as much. Um, but this is a track. This was a single off that album, Who Am I? I? And so anyway, again, start with entertainment, have your mind blown, and then go from there because everything is interesting and rewarding from there. And I, I hope they go back out on tour so that I can see them this time. Anyway, love these guys. All right, next week is... Uh, is a big one. Next week is somebody who has come up dozens and dozens of times on this podcast. It's a big one. It's a big one for me personally, and it's a big one for everybody. Uh, So you can probably guess who that might be. But next week, uh, we finally get to hear from this person. I'm so grateful. Uh, Huge thanks, as always, to Yan Man Makiewicz, my right-hand man, for everything that he does and for putting these things together. Guys, you can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Um, we should have, in fact, we have a lot of book clubs coming up. Um, there might be one in each of the next three weeks, depending on Yan's spe- schedule. So this coming week is going to be one. There's probably going to be one the week after, probably the week after. They're going for a while. Okay. Anyway, love you guys. We'll talk to you soon.